Cantos 10 to 17 of the Purgatorio by way of introduction. The concept of purgatory is difficult for Orthodox and Protestants alike. Theologically speaking, death is the separation of the spiritual dimension from the physical. At death we immediately begin to experience a foretaste of heaven or hell, for we shall either be in communion with God or not. It is a partial judgment on our character and communion with the Lord. A final judgment will occur at the second coming and the last judgment. We think of such events from the aspect of chronological historical time, but in God's hands they are an eternal time, the eternal now. But for us caught in chronological time, the judgment was, is, and will come. Perhaps death is rather like a deep-sea diver taking his leaden boots off, the body, whilst the soul and the spirit that has found an abode in the heart float up to God. If we go too fast, we shall certainly need a decompression chamber. That is as near as I can get to understanding purgatory as a state after death. It is a decompression chamber, getting rid of the rubbish collected during our mortality. We shall not feel worthy to approach too fast to the glorious light, but simply share us. The problem with the Roman Catholic doctrine from an Orthodox point of view is it is not scriptural or within the tradition of the Fathers. Furthermore, as presented, it appears to be too legalistic, based on purely human concepts of justice. It is also usually presented with graphic and literalistic imagery, as if it was waiting for an artist such as Gustave Doré to illustrate it. The problem of purgatory came up in 1439 at the Council of Florence, the last attempt to bring union between um, East and West. The Roman teaching of purgatory was there firmly rejected by St. Mark of Ephesus. The Protestants likewise rejected the teaching as scripturally unsound. Where does all this leave us regarding Dante? I suggest to you that if the tale and its imagery are understood on the four levels of interpretation, leaving aside the political and ecclesiastical undertones, that is, Dante's ideas of the relationship between emperor and pope, problems fall by the wayside. It will be seen that the poet is sharing with his reader 
basic insights into the cleansing and healing of wounds left after sin in both the psyche and the body. We have the literal tale. This we read and enjoy. It is full of memorable imagery, together with the gracious exchange of agape, courtesy between all the characters met along the way. Allegorically, it is about repentance, contrition, advice, spiritual counsel, absolution and healing. Morally, it is about the here and now and what we should be up to, making amends, embracing the spiritual life. Anagogically, it is about the soul in this life as it seeks union with the beloved. Dante lays out a vast scheme before us. If only we could desist from approaching the Purgatorio with a literal and legalistic twist of mind, things would be different. We also need to lose a particular modern, narrow, intellectual Western mentality then problems will evaporate, for what we are reading is above all great art and very great poetry, waiting to be known at some level or another, so as to ring true to us. However, before climbing the cornices and the vices that they represent, we have to discuss the meaning of the keys and the door left untouched last time. I also wish to begin tackling the interpretation of the symbolism of the number seven, which I also looked at a little bit last week. The keys, first of all. According to tradition, these two keys were forged by our Lord at his passion and consigned to St. Peter after his triple confession of love, which you will find in John's Gospel, chapter 21, verses 15 to 19. Also, our Lord gave Peter three times the commission to feed his sheep. The keys stand for the sacraments and confession in particular. One key is said to be silver, the other gold. However, they must work in perfect harmony. The silver key is the wise counsellor loosening the penitent's heart from sin. The golden key is absolution and is gold because of the forgiveness of sins which came about through the life-saving blood of the Passion. It is the golden key that opens the door. The sacrament of confession does not take away the stain of sin. True on behalf of the penitent is essential and above all of course God's mercy 
Dante is stressing in his verses the need for wise counsellors who use the silver key to undo the knot within. He here does not mean a tangle, but a knot that ties something to something, that is, our being bound to sin and therefore the anger that accompanies it. The gradual untying of the knot means that our spiritual father aids to undo the bonds to our wrong thoughts, words and deeds. And the wounds they leave within the soul likewise in good time. By so doing, the good counsellor gradually frees us from anger the ira dei mortali, the anger of mortals, the anger which lurks in the hearts of men and women who are prisoners to sin, bound, knotted to the illusions of lesser loves and attachments. Dante is emphasizing that there can be no progress along the spiritual way without the confession of our sins. And remember that the first words of our Lord's ministry, according to Mark 1.15, where the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand, repent ye and believe the gospel. So our Lord in his mercy has provided his church with the silver and golden keys to unlock the heart and give it access to all that he has done for us, the infinitely rich treasury of grace. Once the door of the heart is open, then the world of remission and purification made accessible to us by our Lord's passion lies before us. We strive forwards to embrace our true wholeness in Christ knowing that we are completely pardoned and cleansed. It is our task to set our lands in order and to make good the wrong done. Secondly, the door. The first door we came to in our reading of the Divina Commedia was open and led down to hell. Our Lord had smashed it when he descended to save the saints of the Old Testament from the grips of Hades. Hell is open, denied to no one. It has free access. The second door was firmly locked and guarded by the Medusa and her demonic hordes. Behind hell's um, portals we found the heretics and those who have deliberately chosen malice and fraud. The gate of dis, however, does not provide against, uh, prevail against the soul. If it is willed that the full horror is to be known, then it is unlocked, and the Lord will send his angel to open the abyss lurking in the human heart. 
Before the door leading to paradise, Dante has to perform a rite of passage, and only thus may he enter on the true way to God. Without confession of sin, the door is barred to us. The heart remains imprisoned and hard. It believes itself to be warm, but is as cold as ice, as we have seen in the imagery of the Inferno. To enter on the true way implies that there can be no turning back. Intrate ma facciovi accorti che di fortona che dietro si guata. Enter, but I bid you know that he who looks back remains outside again. Canto um, 9, um, lines 1, 3, 1 to 2. We are told that three sounds accompanied the opening of the door. Acra, wonderful word in Italian, acra, a harsh creaking sound of resistance. Primo tuono, a first thunder or a noisy sound. Then thirdly, the dolce suono, the sweet sound of the te deum, which is compared to the sound of an organ. That is a quite different sound to that of a large, loud, modern organ. In Siena there is an organ dating from the times of Michelangelo and it sounds completely different to what you and I are used to. So you should imagine there more uh, those um, pictures of angels playing tiny little organs, perhaps four or five of them playing at once, accompanying the Te Deum. Now these sounds described by Dante make sense when we refer to his classical comparison. I refer to lines 136 to 8. That of Caesar in 49 BC grobbing the Roman treasury kept in the temple of Saturn on the Tarpeian Hill in Rome. It was a sacrilegious act indicative of Rome moving away from its old republican policies to that of the tyrant. As the door of the worldly treasury was thrown back, it says, it creaked and made a thunderous sound. And then there were the shouts of men when they plundered the treasury. The door before Dante opens not unto the corruptible nature of worldly treasure, but the eternal treasury won by the Saviour's blood. Dante seems to suggest the door is seldom open, for few are they who are truly sorry for their sins. Also, the initial resistance of the door stresses the uniqueness of the occasion. It is hard, very hard, to break open the hardness of the heart. We may open our hearts truly and fully, but once, and only once, 
is hard work and the door we have created for ourselves is heavy, stubborn with rusty old hinges and roars with a bang when it is flung finally open. Like Dante, we may err and stray in the dark wood. But there the hound of heaven will seek us out and put us to the test. <coughs> there are basically two ways. One will be the descent into hell, eventually to come to the gate of purgatory. The other will be to hell full stop with the dreaded Minos, with the twitching of his tail allocating to us our particular ditch. As Dante stressed in his symbolism, few may ascend directly the mount. They are blocked by the three beasts of hell, for we are a confused and self-justifying people. The Te Deum, line 140, is associated with St. Ambrose of Milan's conversion of St. Augustine. Dante's passing through the door therefore signifies his total conversion to Christ, from which there is no going back. He is at last stepped out. He is at last stepping out of the way, on the way. Sorry, he is at last stepping out on the way of genuine faith, and for the first time in his life. Note here that the great hymn, the Te Deum, will be sung yet another time in the Commedia. And this is after passing his examination by St. Peter on the nature of faith. Here, as he takes his first steps, he hears the hymn, we could say subjectively, a voice mingling with sweet music, with the words not too clear, as when people sing with the accompaniment of an organ. He is hearing the music of the heart that is now opening through his confession. Gradually the words and their meaning will become clearer as he is cleansed of his wounds and his faith, faith is made whole. Perhaps we may speculate that at this point in development or spiritual growth, the soul utters words akin to, Every day will I give thanks unto thee and praise thy name for ever and ever. Lord, thou hast been our refuge from one generation to another. I said, Lord, be merciful unto me, heal my soul, for I have sinned against thee. I flee unto thee, teach me to do thy will, for thou art my God, for with thee is the well of life, and in thy light shall we see light. 
O continue forth thy loving kindness unto them that know thee. Vouchsafe, O Lord, to keep us this day without sin. Blessed art thou, O Lord God of our fathers, and praised and glorified be thy name for ever. Blessed art thou, O Lord, O teach me thy statutes. Be merciful unto me, hear my, heal my soul, for I have sinned against thee. Teach me to do the thing that pleaseth thee, for thou art my God. O continue forth thy loving kindness unto those who know thee. Those are words that are taken from Orthodox Matins, but you can also find them in the Western liturgy. The, the traditional liturgy. The deep meaning of Purgatory's Gate may suggest to an attentive reader that Dante, during his exile, came across a teacher or a teaching which took him to the heart of the Christian tradition. We are getting closer, closer to suggesting various stages in his spiritual growth. Already when he was in hell he had rejected the world of courtly love, Canto five of the Inferno one two four to one four two. He rejected it rejected it as fallacious. This would be akin to seeing through the fashionable outlook of the day and the manipulative power of the media. Next, he recognised that his philosophical studies, the unfinished convivio, were intellectually fundamental to his growth, but they were lacking the mystery of Beatrice, that is, true agape and grace. As we have seen, he considered Mount Purgatory to be resting on the wisdom of true philosophy's foundations. But even this was not the ultimate answer to his quest. It did not open the deep mystery of the Christian life in the mystical body. Somewhere at a time right for his de development, as in all matters appertaining to God, someone must have helped him. As a consequence, he embraced Christ and was lifted up. Remember St. Lucy carried him in his dream to the foot of the gate of, Mount Pur of Purgatory. One way of understanding the deep change taking place in Dante is that figuratively he has passed on through the worldly decadence of the external Church of St. Peter, I mean, I'm speaking in, in images here, to that of St. John. St. John tells us at the end of his Gospel, that is John 21, 20 to 23, that he was instructed to wait patiently for the Lord's second coming, holding dear to the tradition so easily lost amidst the foray of the marketplace of newfangled ideas, 
fashions and social ephemeralia. Now, another look at number seven. In Dante's scheme of things, the number seven is clearly important. There are seven cornices, cleansing the wounds of the seven vices. There are seven planets in the Ptolemaic universe, and consequently there are seven heavens to be known before Dante and Beatrice arrive at the heaven of the fixed stars. Furthermore, there are seven vices to be purged by the seven virtues. There are seven gifts of the Holy Spirit and seven of the Beatitudes are mentioned um, by Dante in particular. Dante clearly had insight into a most ancient teaching the ancient Jewish tradition of the temple. Some say he knew Jewish teachers. In that tradition or understanding of numbers, three, seven and ten play fundamental roles. Even from an exoteric stand we can see evoked by these numbers the Holy Trinity, the sacraments and the commandments. Of all the books of the New Testament which grows out of the temple tradition and the visions of prophets of old, we find the book of Revelation takes precedence. In chapter 4 of that book, verse 5, we are told that seven spirits of God are before the throne of the Almighty and that these and that these are symbolized by seven lamps, the lights of the menorah or candlestick. This is a sacred symbol for Jews to this day. It represents the tree of life and we shall have later to penetrate its symbolism if we are to understand the inner significance of the heavens of the Paradiso. The ancients conceived the human body as a microcosm of the macrocosm. Thus, some, thus somewhere within the body there are the seven lights or deep centers, since we are created in the image of God. Again one may think of the psychic centers as taught in the East. The vices, the vices extinguish these lights within us and we become ill, physically, mentally, spiritually. The cleansing and healing of the wounds caused by our sins, as portrayed by Dante, climbing the cornices, may now begin to take on more sense. He is being prepared, made worthy, to ascend to the heavens with Beatrice. The sevenfold scheme of purgatory is as, following, as follows. Here you may like to make um, four headings. Sin, gift, that's gift of the spirit, virtue, beatitude. And then I will read through um, a cross, as it were, and you can put under each of those um, four headings 
um, Dante's scheme of things. The sin of pride is healed by the gift of the Holy Spirit, the gift of, of the fear of God, of all, of the divinity. Its virtue is temperance, and the secret prayer, as it were, to meditate upon is the beatitude, the poor in spirit. Envy, the gift of the spirit, is piety. The virtue is justice, and the beatitude is the beatitude of the merciful. And see the, the deep significance of this. Envious people judge all the time, but the beatitude that un, undoes it, the particular beatitude to meditate upon, is that of the merciful. Wrath, anger, the gift of the spirit is knowledge. Its virtue is prudence and its particular beatitude is blessed are the peacemakers. Achidie, or sloth, indifference, negligence, procrastination, spiritual torpor, also a certain restlessness and or an ability to work or to pray. Achidie, the gift of the Holy Spirit is fortitude. Its virtue is also fortitude. And the particular beatitude to pray and meditate upon is blessed are those who mourn. Avarice, the gift of the Spirit, is good counsel. The virtue is hope. And the beatitude are blessed are the meek. Gluttony, well, the true gift of the Spirit here is intellect. That might shock some. <laughs> and its virtue is faith. And its beatitude is blessed are those who thirst and hunger <coughs> after righteousness. And finally, lust. The particular gift of the Holy Spirit is wisdom. That's interest profound. And the virtue, of course, is caritas, agape, love. And the beatitude is blessed are the pure in heart. <coughs> we can trace back the listing of the vices to the early church. For example, Evagrius of Pontus, right, who lived from 346 to 399, wrote on how the evil spirits of gluttony, fornication, avarice, grief, anger, achidie, vainglory and pride strike at the psychic life, easily sending a monk in inner life into turmoil. <coughs> 
the evil spirits, ways and tricks to delude the passionate life have to be unmasked and understood so as to render them powerless. Maybe this is what Dante is indicating in his verses. If we are to overcome pride, then we must score out, score out, out such negativity from the passionate workings of the mind. Only thus will the mind regain its proper activity. And this effort is prayer, which is not so much an activity, but eventually a state. And prayer is not necessarily mumbling lots of prayers. It's, as we shall see, especially when we come to the Paradiso, it is being in a contemplative, receptive state. Such a soul, says Evagrius, is a theologian in the true sense. Perhaps as he climbs, that is Dante, as Dante climbs the cornices of purgatory, he is simply learning to pray truth, truthfully. So let us start our ascent of the cornices. And first of all, we come to pride. Cantos 10 to 12. Notice here, pride 10. The ten he's starting out on, on his way in, in, deep, you know, in depth. And number 10, the commandments, the Torah, the way, the journey back to God. The Divine Comedy is full of such games for numbers. As uh, Etienne uh, Gilson, Gilson says in his book, Dante and Philosophy, you know, it's the most extraordinary world that Dante has created in the Divine Comedy. And uh, it, you can't exhaust it. it. Books and books and books and books and books written on Dante. And we can't exhaust that world. There's so much in it. He sums off the whole tradition so much of which has been lost. So pride, sorry, I, I went off on uh, a tangent there. Dante realises that he must not be tempted to look backwards as he hears the great door clang shut behind him. The path is narrow, steep, and zigzags through rocky cliffs. For the first time, he likens the way ahead to passing through the eye of a needle. Matthew um, 19, verse 24. Furthermore, Virgil points out the height and potential danger of the path as it, its edge borders on the void and becomes ever more exposed the higher the poets climb. Martin Buber has a comparable um, image when he likened the inner way to climbing a mountain ridge that gets ever steeper and narrower. The poets come across finely carved relief sculptures on the mountain's rock side. Botticelli has done a wonderful drawing of, of this scene. 
Dante likens them to classical Greece and the work of Polycletus. However, no doubt he had something more akin to the sculptured pulpits of Nicola Pisano in mind, as you can see in the cathedral at Siena. The first um, sculpture, relief that is, pictures the Annunciation. And Dante emphasizes, emphasizes with traditional um, medieval insight at, at that time that the angels Ave and Mary's response, Ecce and Chila Dei, is the angelic greeting which undoes Eve's sin, Ave Eva, because of Mary's great humility. After the previous Cantor's description of the keys that open the human heart, emphasis is now given to Mary turning the single key that opened God's love through the Incarnation. John Donne wrote in one of his sermons, The Son of David is the key of David, Jesus Christ. He hath open, opened heaven for us all. The sermon for Easter Day, 1629. And the anthem, O Clavis David, was sung at the end of Advent in the West. Virgil tells Dante to look at the next scene. It represents King David, girded with a linen ephod, dancing before the ark, when Michal, Saul's daughter, mad with pride at her royal descent, looked out of a window and despised the king for his enthusiasm. Maybe Dante here wishes us to compare in our minds David's uncontrolled display of ecstasy, as it were, to Mary's dignified song, the Magnificat. Also note that Dante is looking at the scene of David dancing before the ark from where Michal is peering, thus associating himself with her pride. A third relief depicts the Emperor Trajan giving air, ear to the widow and recompensing her for her son's death. We shall hear more of Trajan when we get to, the para to paradise. Thus, the scenes presented by Dante are all examples of humility taken from the New, the Old Testament and classical history. Note also, also that they're not freestanding sculpture. They're, they are relief. This is theologically very important. They are sculptured in stone and examples of art, quotation marks. Stone, the artist, his imagination and work. Even the poet, indeed any creative person, may be understood in themselves as examples of pride <coughs> and the danger of idolatry. We only have to think of one of Daumier's lithographs 
showing an artist destroying a painting after its rejection from by the salon. And the caption goes something like, Ungrateful country, you will never have my masterpiece. And the sin of pride, of course, crept into the artistic worlds with a vengeance from the Renaissance onwards, with its growing emphasis on the individual and his individual piece of work. As to emphasise the connection between stone, idolatry and pride, the proud are seen carrying enormous rocks, lumps of rocks, as their penance. Heads once held high like farinatas deep in hell are now forcibly lowered under the weight of stone. Through those that he meets, he gives three main examples of pride. Pride of race, pride or, or pride of race or nationality, pride of achievement. It is an, actually an artist who speaks note at that point, and pride in dominating others. Dante's words are devastating. It's, it's Canto 10, 121 to 129. I read the Italian first and I uh, translate it. O superbi cristiani, miseri lassi, che della vista della mente infermi, Fidanza avete nei retrosi passi. Non v'accorgete voi che noi siamo vermi nati a formare l'angelica farfalla che vola alla giustizia senza schermi? Di che l'animo vostro in alto galla poi siete quasi automata in difetto siccome vermo in cui formazione falla. O proud Christians, wretched and weary, whose sick in mental vision put trust in backward steps, are you not aware that we are worms, implying half-finished beings, a caterpillar could be a good um, image there, born to form the angelic butterfly, the soul that flies unto judgment without defences? Why does your mind soar up aloft since you are as it were in perfect insects even as the worm in which full form is wanting? That pride makes us sick in mental vision. It's at the root of all sin. It limits our, us to our little selves, our ego, our miserable selfhood. Our will and desires just revolve around our small orbit, enclosing in with ever-increasing density. We have first to crack pride and heal its wounds if we are to progress along the way. Now Dante calls these images whips, examples, to tame the mind, to heal the soul. He is saying that we need right imagery if we are to conquer pride and its grip over the ego. 
he would have been horrified at the media of today and what it throws at the mind, rotting the imagination into mere fantasies designed to trap the ego into desires and wants. The incarnation and Mary's obedient humility is certainly the icon to ward off pride, but so are certain examples, such as one can find in the Book of Psalms. And we may even think of examples of humility drawn from history or life all around us. Right thoughts, positive thinking, gives us right intentions. This is what is meant by the, 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 the whips, as Dante calls them. Dante presses his point further by noting that as he leaves one corners for the next, that he is given bridles to make firm Christ's yoke, which the soul has gladly received. He sees engraved on the floor of this cornice, don't forget, the proud are bowed low under the burden of their rock and cannot look up, scenes portraying examples of pride. They, you'll find them in 12, um, Cantos 25 to 63. And the first letters of the Tetzinas spell out Wom or Wom, man. In the Tetzina beginning with line 61, the letter of each line, that's the, at the beginning of each line, spells out Wom, man. <coughs> Pride is the base fundamental sin. It rots history from the examples given of mythological giants to early man, from Babel to Troy, from Florence to London. We do not see the warning signs, for we hold our heads high, whereas only humility, the lowering of the eyes, figuratively speaking, is able to read the signs clearly laid out before us. Uh, Canto 12, 70-72 Or superbite, e via col viso altero, figlioli deva, e non chinate il volto, si che vegiate il vostro mal sentiero. Be proud then, march on with haughty heads held high, children of Eve, nor bend them toward the ground to see the evil road you travel by. In the structure of purgatory, Dante dreads the punishments of pride, anger and lust. Those are the sins he accused himself of. He believed he was fairly free of envy. He was an abstemious man and certainly not given to gluttony. An avarice he hated, he was neither a spendthrift nor a hoarder, and he was certainly not slothful. Each cornice is given a special prayer and one of the Beatitudes. Um, to meditate on, as particularly re relevant to their vice. The proud are given our Father, 
and the beatitude, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of, God, of heaven. How profound words fail. Pride excludes from see, the seeing of the kingdom. We have to become as children. The Lord's Prayer turns our attention away from ourselves and places all things in his, capital H, hands. It reverses our preoccupation with ourselves. Dante gives, incidentally, a magnificent paraphrase of the Lord's Prayer at the beginning of Canto 11, lines 1 to 24. Canto 12 concludes with the angel of humility wiping away the first of Dante's bees. The pilgrim soul immediately fills itself to be lighter. And Virgil explains that as the peas are removed, he will feel progressively lighter and more attuned. So we come on now to envy, Cantos 13 to 15. The images of envy's whip come as voices speaking from the air and they are examples of generosity. The first recalls the marriage at Cana, John chapter 2. The second tells of how when Orestes was condemned to death his friend Pylades offered himself instead. If you don't like that, if that's too remote an example, you may um, be able to supplant it with the end of Dickens' tale, The Tale of Two Cities. Dante wouldn't be upset by that. He expects us to translate his imagery into our own. The third voice emphasises our Lord's teaching that we have to love our enemies. It is interesting that the examples of generosity come to the mind as voices spoken on the air. And curiously, they recall the descriptions of evil spirits speaking to the soul, which we may find in the writings again of Avagrius of Pontus. Envy comes. You see, Dante is suggesting the opposite. But envy comes by subtle suggestion, preying on the weakness of fear and inferiority. The envious person has a graduate hatred, and yet longing for other men's and longing for other men's possessions and fortune. And he longs to see others deprived of their gifts and happiness. We may note how the hidden persuaders of the media often play with envy in publicity. Envy loves to pull down others for what they consider to be pedestals. The most poignant example today is the trend to mock the church, even our Lord or the Virgin Mary. Envy loves the lowest common denominator. It rots the very foundations of education. Envy breeds divisions, 
so that it may be seen to rule. It hates partnerships. Envy loves to feel that it is with it. No one must be seen to get out of the general swim of of things. Otherwise they must be got at, disillusioned, humiliated. Envy thrives on ignorance. Dante is suggesting here that the envious person must pay careful attention to the suggestive voices that he hears. Besides the negative suggestions, there is the clear prompting of the conscience. The penance of the envious is frightening, for their eyes with which they look maliciously on others have now their lids sewn up together by wire. They are blind folks sitting, as it were, like beggars, begging their case for pardon. Their allotted prayer is the litany of the saints. The voices of the bridal for envy are the examples of Cain and Abel and the fate of Auglaros taken from classical mythology. If you want to see a wonderful painting of that episode of the fate of Auglaros, if you go to the Fitzwilliam in Cambridge, you'll find a painting by Veronese. And if you look up the notes in the commentary or catalogue, you will have what, in a nutshell, what Dante is talking about. Dante has another P raised from his forehead by the angel of mercy or generosity, and he hears sung, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Dante consistently stresses the right and vital importance of imagery. Right examples must be kept in the mind in order to burnish away the vices. Note that he takes biblical and classical examples. Today we may choose other examples than those taken from classical sources. This brings me now to Virgil's first discourse on love, Canto 15, 43 to 84. The discourse is brief, but to the point. Virgil, the good of the intellect, forces home a basic verity, and that is that the prince of this world holds dominion over his subjects through the vice of envy. Where would be the free market, the rise and fall of social classes, without the materialistic grasping of things and social position position associated with envy? These discourses of Virgil will later be taken up and by Beatrice. They are like seeds which have to be nourished by a turn of phrase spoken by a particular soul or by Virgil himself. They help to indicate that Dante's journey is the striving of the mind, the noose in the classical sense, 
as it passes fundamental stages along the way of growth and maturity. He is in the process of learning that prayer is communion with the intellect of the intellect with God. Not emotionalism or fantastic imagination. Basic to the argument in the first discourse is the difference between two lifestyles, that of Caesar compared to the life to which we are called as Christians. Now a Franciscan friar, Fra Giordano of Dante's time, said in one of his sermons, and it fits in completely with what Dante is saying, if I want to get rich, it is necessary that many others become poor, for not everyone can have the goods of this world. But the goods of paradise, which do not diminish because someone has lots of them, for they are, they are infinitely and eternally sufficient and superabundant, they cannot be taken off or diminished, no matter how many men are rich in these goods. They are like the sun which illuminates things for everyone and does not fail to shed its light on someone just because someone else is using light. You can um, find a sort of parallel of that thought in William Blake's letter to Dr. Trussell. It's number five in Geoffrey Keane's collection of Blake's complete writings. <coughs> The amazing reality of the spiritual life is that, is that the good enjoyed by someone does not diminish yours or mine. In fact, our portion grows as we share and generate peace and love. As Virgil points out, we become mirrors to each other, reflecting the light known to each one according to his or her degree. Place on the ladder or rung on the ladder of ascent. If we turn to St. Augustine, one of Dante's great sources, the saint is blunt. Envy divides the earthly and heavenly cities from the outset. It's the city of God, number 15. He takes Ramus, who was killed by Romulus, as his example of political envy, says, For no one who had a passion to glory and domination could be fully the master if his power were diminished by living by a living co-regent. Such crime exists on one level or another in nations or the city once it is forgotten that the nation and the city should be a reflection of heaven and the heavenly city. Dante develops this idea throughout the Paradiso. The sin of Abel, of course, is far worse, for there is no cupidity for earthly matters in it. The root of such a sin is truly diabolical envy which moves evil men to hate those who are good for no other reason than they are good. And St. Augustine concludes, 
Unlike material possessions, goodness is not diminished when it is shared, either momentarily or permanently with others, but expands and, in fact, the more heartily each of the lovers of goodness enjoys the possession, the more does goodness grow. What is more, goodness is not merely a possession that no one can maintain who is unwilling to share it, but it is one that increases the more its possessor loves to share it. This first discourse on love already hints at Dante's Franciscanism and surely his belief in the need for a spiritually renewed church. Anger, Cantos 15 from line 85 to the end of Canto um, 27. Dante knew the vice of anger. One only has to think of his betrayal, exile and humiliating disappointments. He understood the vice profoundly. Anger is like being lost in suffocating smoke of a moorland fire or a choking pea soup fog once known in London. Wrath makes us blind to insight and judgment so that we do not know what we are doing. We literally become blind with rage. Anger is totally destructive to prayer and the lack of control shows us just how far we are from the still centre of true contemplative prayer. Evagrius, if I may refer to him again, says, Prayer is the flower of gentleness and of freedom from anger. The subtle spirit of anger succeeds in convincing us that our rage is right, and so traps us in judging the other. It is our desire for this or that, good or bad, which fuels anger in our hearts. St. John Cassian, one of the great founders of monasticism in the West, insists that we must eradicate the demon of anger. For as long as he lurks in our heart, he will blind the eyes of the heart. He writes, the final cure for this sickness is to realize that we must not become angry for any reason whatsoever, whether just or unjust. When the demon of anger has darkened our mind, we are left with neither the light of discrimination nor the assurance of true, true judgment, nor the guidance of righteousness, and our soul cannot become the temple of the Holy Spirit. Devastating words when you think of the present. The Commedia is full of Dante's invectives against the corruption of the papacy. Clergy, monastics, politicians, despots and individuals. His frustrati frustrated anger was especially worked out on his beloved Florence. 
yet he recognised the fact that it would be delayed for quite a long time on this cornice. The wounds and scars left on his soul due to his bitter exile could not be removed overnight. Note that the beatitude of this cornice is Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. And the prayer given to the wrathful is the annual stay, O Lamb of God, that takes away the sins of the world, have mercy upon us, and grant us thy peace. The visions of the mind, which are the whip against anger, are the virgin's meekness on finding her son in the temple, an example taken from classical history, that is the embracing of two lovers in public, which induced the anger of the girl's mother, which was subdued by a friend, and the execution of St. Stephen, who implored for pardon for those who stoned him. Note that the control of anger comes through not letting our mind be taken over by a sense of self-justification and by remembering clear examples of pacification. Clearing the smoke of anger from our minds is like stepping once more into clarity and stability after a lack of equi equilibrium. Dante tells us to bridle our mind immediately with examples of foolish anger and so keep ourselves clear in mind. I quote, um, it's 17, 13 to 18. O maginativa che ne rupe talvolta si di fuor com non s'accorge perché d'intorno suonin militurbe. Che muovete, che senso non ti porge, muovete lume che nel ciel si informa, per se o per voler che giù lo scorge. O fantasy that reaves or snatches us off the way, so from ourselves that we remain distraught, Death through a thousand trumpets round us bray. What moves thee when the senses show thee naught? Light moves thee, form in heaven, by will may be of him who sends it down, or else self-wrought. Now I, I have um, a little bit more are we all exhausted? It would take about six minutes, but I think it'd be good to get it over. Would you, do you agree? And if you have a, a copy of um, Dorothy Sayers, in my old um, Breaking Up edition, it's pages 202 to 203, you have this wonderful scheme that she set out of um, purgatory. And it may help you. Uh, to follow my um, my commentary here. So Virgil's exposition of the arrangement of purgatory, 1785 to 139. God is love, 
and he loves all things. Love is found throughout the whole creation, in creatures and plants, even stones and flames. I'm, I'm paraphrasing Dante's thought here. Love inclines the separate parts of the created order to their own perfection. Sorry, love inclines the separate parts of the created order to their own perfection. All things in the created order seek their proper end. Virgil emphasises that neither God nor creature was ever without love, either natural or of the mind. Uh, 1791-3 Love naturally moves to embrace the good. Thus for us, in the created order, the aim or end of love is a, a good or an apparent good. Natural love is an unselfish instinct and is consequently free of blame. It tends to the good existing in a thing. Love of the mind, on the other hand, is rational and therefore involves the consent of the will. Unfortunately, it is here matters go astray for we may aspire towards a faulty end, love perverted, or have too much zeal, love excessive, or lack of zeal, love defective. Our aim should always be towards the good. Virgil then turns to secondary, lesser goods, all those legitimate things that we need as we go about our daily business of living in this world. In these there is no evil except when they become ends in themselves and separate us from God. For example, the love of money, the love of possessions. Love, consequently, is the root of all our actions, good or bad. It's Dante is here expressively repudiating the Gnostic heresy that natural desires and needs and objects are or can be evil in themselves. Take computers. Um, rightly used, they're very helpful. Wrongly used, they trap us and lead to wrong ends. There's nothing worse, as I've discovered this week, when your computer collapses. Absolutely awful. It's only realised how you're attached to that illusion that's in your computer. And you can't get it out anymore. It's gone. Sorry, a little aside, it's been a dreadful week. Much of Virgil's argument may be found in the convivio. It is germane to nature, that, to the nature of God, to will to be and so we who are created in his image naturally desire with all our force to be. We are dependent on God, preserved by him. Therefore our soul naturally desires and wills to be united to him. Only thus may we truly fortify our own being. Virgil proceeds from line 106 onwards to show what is the object of love perverted. 
It cannot be the self, for we naturally love ourselves, and to wish to harm ourselves is a perversion. Nor can it be by definition God, for all creatures are dependent on him, and to hate God, or self for that matter, is one of the delusions of hell. The object of love perverted has therefore to be our neighbour, on whom we unleash our anger, malice and violence. The roots of all such thoughts, words and actions are the vices of pride, envy and wrath. We are unable to tolerate rivalry. Next we fear loss through rivalry and soon we seek revenge for injury. It is a sad situation and it is a material of tragedies, whether they be actual or studied in the great works of Shakespeare. These sins are purged on the three lower cornices of Mount Purgatory, through which Dante has climbed. Ahead of the poets are four more cornices. These deal with legitimate loves that have erred. The first cornice will be concentrated on our sloth in responding to God's love. Sloth, or achidie, is a defect within our souls for which we alone are responsible. The remaining three cornices are concerned with misdirected love, <coughs> love excessive. Lesser loves cannot bring us to heaven for their aim is not God, who is the essential good and the source of all contingent goods. These are the avari- uh, vices of avarice, gluttony and lust.